Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. And I think that the, the sense of loneliness comes from Every part of my life died. I got separated out from the regular trajectory. I got separated out from my peer group. There's a pre and a post, and there's a death right in the middle. And that's a, it's a jarring feeling even now. You know, and most people can't even, they can't even fathom about relating to that. I lost my job. I lost my health. I lost the where I lived and my social, all, all the life I had built. I lost a relationship that I at the time thought was going to be marriage and starting a family and all that. I lost all of that. I lost my sense of identity. I lost my hopes and dreams. I, I, I had hoped for a long time to actually do some form of medical mission. And I thought that was kind of maybe an entry point into maybe doing that more long term. I lost that. I lost the respect of many people because I just was a total mess. So many things were lost. Life is a journey, and most of it is spent in the in-between, in the middle places. But every once in a while, you find yourself on the other side of something. These are the stories we are telling here. We believe that stories change the world, and we hope that when you hear stories of lives changed, obstacles overcome, lives broken, lives mended, and hope found, you'll actually see yourself in their stories. Now more than ever, we need each other, and we need each other's stories. This is On the Other Side. Hey there, we are the hosts of the show On the Other Side. I'm Jamie Ivey. And I'm Aaron. And today is a show you might think is about one thing, but quickly turns to a conversation about so much more. It's true. On today's show, I sat down with Preston Gorman to talk about what his life has been like on the other side of Ebola. Yep, she said Ebola. In March of 2015, Preston was living and working in West Africa when he contracted Ebola. He quickly found himself severely sick. He's going to tell us about it. Odds of survival are not very high for this, and he was very quickly put on a plane back to America, and Aaron, in this plane he was on, there's a specialized isolation room in the back. I've never been on a plane like that, and I didn't know it existed. But while Preston's story of surviving Ebola is a miracle in and of itself, his story continues into his recovery. He moved back home with his parents, and life on the other side of Ebola was nothing like life before Ebola. Yeah, while I was interviewing him, I was reminded about how much trauma has effects on all of us. Sometimes we don't even realize what a traumatic event um, we've walked through and how it affects us. In fact, he doesn't even remember that flight home. I mean, he was just out of it, unconscious. He doesn't have a lot of memories of Hmm. that. He was caring for patients with Ebola. 
which can be traumatic. He was watching patients die, which can be traumatic. And then he becomes the patient traumatic. Wow. This story is incredible. And it's also a reminder to all of us about how we need to be patient, kind, and loving with those around us that are enduring difficult times. So let's hear how our regular Monday morning meeting was the beginning of a lifetime of pain and hurt. So on a Monday morning, I went to work at the hospital. We had a meeting in first thing in the morning. And since it was a small room, most of us were standing up. I was standing up kind of in the back and I kind of felt faint. And I actually passed out in the middle of the meeting. Just real, I mean, it was real briefly kind of felt on, found myself, you know, laying on the floor with people staring at me. And, you know, I just chalked it up to dehydration because it was hot. You sweated a lot. You know, there was no air conditioning. So I was like, yeah, I'm exhausted, dehydrated. Um, went back to the camp, rested the rest of the day. They checked uh, some vital signs. My temperature was normal. They checked my EKG was normal. And they checked a malaria test, which was negative. So I was like, okay, just rest. Take the next, take tomorrow off. And then maybe you'll go back to work. Um, the following day, I woke up and I felt very weak. And I felt very hot. And I checked my own temperature because we all had our own thermometers. And it was 103 degrees. That's a high temperature. That's a high temperature. Now, you're a a PA working there. Mm -hmm. At this point, you're not working specifically with patients with Ebola. Am I correct? At that specific point, I was not. I'd spent the first couple of days in an Ebola treatment unit. And then I'd shifted to the hospital down the road, which was technically not supposed to be treating the Ebola patients. But I had... In, in the course of being there, I had been in an Ebola treatment unit. Is that where they think that you contracted the virus? We never really figured it out. Um, it could have been there, but it also could have been the hospital because they would triage patients there. And if they had any Ebola symptoms, they would send them away. But we didn't have any PPE there. So I may have triaged a patient, then sent them away. And that maybe that's, we don't know. You know, I only know what PPE is. Because Because of of 2020 COVID, yes, yeah. Okay, so you find yourself waking up, 103 fever. Mm -hmm. Is your first thought, I've contracted Ebola or no? No, I actually was a bit irrationally optimistic at the moment um, because there was another doctor in our camp that had also had a fever and he had gotten treated for just E. coli, just basically a stomach bug, and he was fine. So I was like, oh, maybe it's just a stomach bug. Um, and I was, I mean, I, the possibility of bulls there, but I, I was really trying to keep that. I was like, let's, let's not think about that too much. You're very optimistic then. I'm usually not, but that, for some reason at that point I was. I would have self-diagnosed Lynn a heartbeat. <laughs> um, okay, so what other symptoms were you having that led you then to think, okay, this is more serious? So yeah, at that point, they actually told me to put on a Tyvek suit. They put me in an ambulance a couple hours later um, and I rode by myself in the back of an ambulance two hours to the facility. And when I was in the back of that ambulance, um, first of all, I could feel myself just profusely sweating. I mean, I was losing so much fluid and I actually, I just, because I was supposed to keep it on to stay isolated from the outside world, but there was no one back there with me. So I just ripped it off because I I knew I was losing so much fluid. If I keep this thing on, I'm going to pass out back here, maybe die back here. So I just ripped it off. And not too long after that, I started puking all over the back of that ambulance. And I mean, it was bad. I mean, it was just like vomiting upon vomiting upon vomiting. And I thought to myself, I don't think this is normal. Like this is, this is bad. And you're all alone. Completely alone. So two hours, you get to the hospital. They immediately are taking you in. No, no, no. Isolating. No, no, they didn't take me in. He... 
the guy in the front just kind of bangs on the the window area between the cab and the back to indicate that we're there. And I let myself out and stumble out. I can barely walk. I'm weak, very weak. And I kind of stumble through the triage area where the triage desk is. And there's a plexiglass window between me and the nurses. And they start asking me questions. And then I kind of lay down the ground and start, I actually, at that point, I'm dry heaving. I'd lost everything. So now I don't have anything left in my stomach. So now I'm just dry heaving on the concrete by myself again while nurses ask me questions behind the plexiglass. Can you, can you kind of set the stage a little bit for me? This is 2015. You're in Sierra Leone. There's an Ebola outbreak. You went there as a physician assistant to work and serve um, and help. When you get to this hospital, like, are you one of a few Americans? Are there multiple Americans? Like, I remember 2015, the outbreak, but it didn't affect my life at all. Right. You know, so and so I'm was, wondering what was the what was the the temperature like there when this is happening? So this facility was actually a facility set up by the British. It was a, it was specifically kind of a temporary large sort of tent-like medical facility only for healthcare workers, but not just U.S. healthcare workers. Any healthcare workers that had symptoms that needed to be tested. So I wouldn't, it wasn't a heavily populated place at the time I was there. There was probably, there had to be less than 10 patients there. When I okay, was there. okay. That sets the stage a little bit. Was there the fear of what it would do if you had Ebola? Like there might've been the fear here in the States as we were hearing about it. Or, I mean, you went there to serve. What did you then feel about, I think I actually have the virus that I have been treating people with? Because I would imagine, and I, and you said you weren't specifically treating patients with Ebola at that time, but it wasn't like unheard of. And I would imagine that you were actually seeing a lot of people die from this. And so now you find yourself with the exact virus that mm -hmm. you have been watching people die from. Yeah. I don't even, what... What were you thinking? What were you feeling? Well, it wasn't, I mean, I didn't, well, in the moment of all the vomiting and getting in the hospital, I really was just like, let me get tested. Let me get tested. Let me not jump to conclusions. But there in the back of my mind, there was like, man, this is really similar to my patients. But it didn't, I, I, I don't know why. I just, I wasn't going to go there until I got the test results back. But that night, I got the test results back. And that's when I was like, I, I could die of this. I mean, what were the chance? What are the odds that you would? They have to be high. They're pretty high. The mortality rate, the mortality rate varies depending on the treatment you get, but it's roughly 40 to 50%. And I think it's, I a little, it's a little better than that if you get ICU care with a ventilator. But without that, it's 40 to 50%. I think I read in the article in the Post that of all the people who contracted the virus um, in West Africa in that time, I think 40% of them That sounds died. about right. This would be, an epidemiologist would have a more accurate answer for you. I, I shouldn't, I can't claim to be an expert, but yeah. that's a rough estimate. Yeah, yeah. So you get the positive tests. Do you call your family immediately? What is, I mean, um, you're on the other side of the world. Right, so... Um, yeah, the doctor came in and said, Preston, I'm bad news. Your your Ebola PCR test is positive. And there was, I was just kind of silent for a second because I was like, is this really, is this actually happening? Um, but yeah, I actually called my father right after that and told him. And 
that's probably a whole separate interview with him to go through what he felt in that moment. I'm sure. But yeah, it was a dark day. All right, so you find out, yes, you do in fact have this virus that you had been helping people with. Um, I know a part of your story is and you then took the journey all the way home back to the States. Was that always an option or how did you end up coming back to the States and not staying for treatment there at the hospital? Um, I think the plan all along was to fly me back. Okay. Because I was a United States citizen, that was my right, from what I understand. Um, so I mean, immediately, the doctor, the doctor told me, upon diagnosing me, she said, we're calling the State Department, we're calling the CDC, we're going to be getting you out of here. So I, I, I think that was all part of the protocol. What kind of plane do you fly home on when you're sick um, like that? It was a specialized plane by a company called Phoenix Air, and they have an isolation unit in the back of the plane. Wow. And they got three nurses that rotate in and out with you th- during the flight. Do you remember the flight? Uh, I remember portions of the flight, but I was pretty out of it. Yeah. You fly into Dulles. Mm-hmm. They take you straight to the hospital. Yep. Tell me what life was, what happened then. So that's a really foggy memory. For they, you, I'm sure, yeah. They carried me off a plane in a bubble, which you can see in the newspaper article, but I don't even remember that. I, I remember being very weak, but I, I didn't know they carried me off in a bubble. That that was news to me, mm-hmm. literally when the article came out. I didn't know that. That's funny. Um, I do remember riding in the back of the ambulance, uh, although I don't remember the bubble part, but I remember the back, because I put it in an ambulance with two doctors or might have been a doctor nurse to the hospital. And I just kind of, I just remember being like, okay, I'm on U.S. soil. Maybe I can survive this. If Mm. I can just hang on long enough. Maybe you can survive. The next couple of weeks are a blur for you. Total blur. But you did almost die. You were in ICU. You were separated from your family. Everyone that came in contact with you had to have on protective gear, I would assume. Um, And then you come out. Like, you survive. Uh, How many Americans? Nine. Nine survived. How many, do you know the number? I think 11 I was going to, I think it was 11. Yeah. Nine survived. All of them were brought back to the States. Some of them got it while they were here. Yes, I remember that. So, but the ones that didn't, I think were all brought back. Yeah, yeah. So you survive. Hooray. Everyone's happy. Everyone's excited. And yet I know that's where a lot of your journey begins. Um, I also know from reading the Washington Post article that you decided at the beginning to stay anonymous. What was your reasoning behind that? Because I think I felt so lost and confused. I was like, I don't know that going public is going to help that process. You felt lost and confused when you came out of the, when you left the hospital and were on that journey, or I mean, within within a couple of weeks, yeah. you know. And I, but I knew when the doctor actually told me, he came to me when I was about to be discharged, and he said, "Hey, we can do a press conference when you leave here if you want. Right now, you're still anonymous, or we can just kick you out the back door." And he said, and he, I mean, he was being he was joking, but um, he said. I would probably recommend just kicking you out the back door. And I was like, yeah, I'm totally on board with that. And I I don't know why. I just maybe with some deep intuition, like I'm not ready for the publicity because right now I just, I had this intuitive sense that I was about to have to go down this journey and that it might be messy. and, And I really didn't want the newspapers a part of that. Yeah. Well, your journey that you embark on 
was messy, is messy, was difficult. And I'll be honest, and I think this is one of the reasons why you probably agreed to sit down with me and chat about this, is hearing about your story and then hearing you say that maybe some of the most difficult seasons have been your time out of the hospital after that. It can feel a little confusing. Like, wait, what? You made it. Preston, you're alive. Like, we're everything's good. What could be wrong now? You survived Ebola. Um, but easy, easy for them to say. Easy. And I know that's not true. Um, and so that's a kind of, I want to, I want to talk about that today because I think that your journey is that this is the entire reason why we did this podcast is because we know that stories change the world and we hear someone's story and it changes something in us. And we remember that next time we have that encounter. Um, and so your story begins when you are discharged and you head home and you live with your family. What was that experience like of surviving something so in most people's minds, um, the odds were not in your favor of you surviving and you made it. You survived, uh, you were healthy and you go home. What was that? Walk us through that journey of even heading back into your household with your parents um, and your brothers after they had, or your family, um, after they had been desperately begging God for your life. Yeah. Um. Well, there was like maybe an initial period of euphoria, like I'm alive, great. But within a relatively short time frame, maybe maybe even a couple of weeks, I just felt lost and confused. Um, and I could tell, like, well, they, they don't they don't get it. Like, and they never said, "Hey, you got to be back to normal now." That th- those words were never verbalized. But it's like be, almost by by default because their lives just kept on moving, and mine took a massive pause. I felt like the odd one out and like, why don't I fit? What's what's wrong with me? Why can't I recover? And just feeling like, where do I go from here? What's my identity now? Who am I? And the sort of half joking thing I like to say to people is without a major illness, if you lost your job and moved back in with your parents in your mid thirties, that already is really hard. That already has some landmines in it add on top of it that kind of trauma and try to say as respectfully as possible and into a, back into a family system that has no framework for this and never really showed the willingness to understand that framework, that's a recipe for disaster. Yeah. You mentioned, you know, that that would be difficult no matter what and now you're bringing trauma in. Let's talk about this for a minute because I think that a lot of people would think, well, your trauma was in, you know, West Africa where you contracted contracted this virus and then you came home and you got well, you got well. Like what's the trauma? And and you're saying the entire experience was traumatic. I mean, I think that even someone spending days, hours, weeks in ICU has its own traumatic effect. I was a, I was in isolation a month. Complete isolation. That is traumatic. That's traumatic. It's traumatic. Being on a ventilator for 10 days, unconscious, is traumatic. Being told you have an illness that'll likely kill you is traumatic. Going to another country and witnessing other people die from a bad illness is traumatic. And then you survive. That's traumatic in itself with survivor's right. guilt. The, I think the article alludes to this. They've, they've noticed PTSD in three categories of people in this ordeal. People who were there and just witnessed to it in general, caregivers and patients who survived it. I was all three. That's traumatic. You come home. Now you're having to deal with something that there's 
no handbook for, no one, I would assume when you left the hospital was like, hey, watch out for these things that might happen. And then you're in a house, probably not to fault your parents at all, but just nobody knows how to deal with this and you're feeling alone. They've never even traveled overseas. Right. So how did that start to play out emotionally for you? Like what were some of the signs or, you, you know, you felt you said you felt lonely and isolated. What did that look like on a day-to-day basis within your life? Yeah, the practical ways that paid out. I mean, there were, there were actually large spaces of like, um, yeah, how, how to describe this? So one example would be a conversation that occurred with one of my family members only about two or three weeks after I left the hospital where I think they were noticing some of my odd behavior because I think I was... So I was pushing people away and acting, I think, a little strange. And this particular member of the family just kind of confronted me pretty pretty harshly without even trying to understand why that might be happening. It was just like, kind of get your act together kind of thing. Like, everybody notices this and like, you're kind of out to lunch and like, you need to get it together. It's, that's roughly how the conversation mm-hmm. went. And that that actually, that drove me away more. way more. I mean, that actually sort of set the stage for probably the rest of my recovery. Yeah. Um, also, I think there's a dynamic between me and, well, it was my mother, um, where I think she wanted to do a lot of caregiving early on. And some of that was needed just in the first week or two. But I, gradually, I was able to get my autonomy back. And I desperately needed to feel my autonomy. And I don't think she knew how to, like, let that go. Yeah. You know? Um, and then there was a lot of space where, we didn't even really talk about what happened a whole lot. And I almost feel like I needed someone to like check in with me on like a weekly basis, weekly basis. How are you feeling about this? Like, what do you, what's going on inside of you? But no one asked about that. And that was something I probably needed. Um, and then there was just, and this is this part of it's really nobody's fault of their own there wasn't anybody for me to identify with. Like, just by the default setting of everybody's living their first world, American, comfortable, safe lives, and I've just been through not only major trauma, but also a lot of losses that came from that. Nobody can relate. So nobody, it's like, yeah, I get back to work and you'll be fine. It's like, wait, but this thing happened and how do I, nobody can connect to that. And so I I just felt this, Nobody, want, nobody. So sometimes it wasn't something practical. It was like this abstract kind of, there's all this sort of blank space where maybe people were doing normal things with their lives, their interaction with me, but no one was like really delving into, hey, how are you handling this? You know, and so I think those, all those things combined and, and I could tell just by people's behavior, probably within three to four months, I could kind of feel their expectations a little bit and things that they would communicate in subtle ways that may, they not may not be aware of that communicated like, yeah, it's probably, you know, it's probably about time. And, Get past uh, this. And, and I couldn't, and I didn't know why, like what's, what's wrong with me, you know, and this is how this manifested. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. 
It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit CARON.org slash lost. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. So this is five years ago. I can tell that you have a lot of language surrounding trauma now in your life, which I can tell you've been in therapy and counseling. And there is this understanding of your emotions five years on the other side. Then you didn't have, I'm assuming you didn't have this much knowledge about trauma and PTSD and, you know, the body keeps us, all these things. You didn't have this. So how does someone figure that stuff out? Like, how did you figure that out? How did you realize I might need to see a psychologist? I think I need some counseling. If no one else is telling you. Right. It wasn't until, I mean, I knew something was wrong within the first six months, but I thought the, was like, I thought it was like a character flaw. I mean, I literally thought it was like, yeah, I'm just a lazy, good for nothing. Like I need to get back to work, pull myself up. Like that's the problem, you know? And, but even though I knew something was off, I didn't know. And I tried to communicate in different ways to different family members, to the one I was dating at the time, like, I, something's not right. And they just always looked at me like, yeah, well, whatever, you know, like, and so it wasn't until I'm, after I moved to Austin and some things happened here, it's almost like I got some distance from the situation that allowed my body and soul to begin to actually process it. And when that started to happen, I became borderline non-functional, <laughs> crying and just not knowing being so I was suicidal. When I when I became suicidal, that's when I was like, yeah, I need it. So that pushed me to that's when I found a counselor. Um I started reading as I was like, I got to find out what is wrong because I got a couple answers from I mean this statement well, but it's probably not going to come across right. I had well-meaning but ill-informed and ignorant statements from people in my church that just had no understanding of trauma. And I was like, I just intuitively, I knew these, this isn't the, no, that's not the right. It's not going to get you what you need. Those are not what's, that's not the answer here. Mm -hmm. So I just dug and dug and dug. I mean, it was counseling. It was reading. I went to a treatment center. I mean, I just like pursued healing with like kind of a reckless abandon. (laughs) I saw you even went to an AA group. Yeah, I mean, so I I wasn't really a heavy drinker, honestly. Um, there was like one night I think where I drank pretty heavily, and I just knew AA was a place where you could. There were broken people, <laughs> so I happened to go there. I happened to meet a guy there who introduced me to the therapist that I went to. I love that. You're <laughs> like, where can I go where people can not shame me and they're going to understand me and they're not going to care what I say? Yeah, love it. It's yeah. so true. It's so true. So you started working towards that, especially when you started thinking, okay, I'm having suicidal thoughts. This mm-hmm. is something I need to get some help here, which mm-hmm. praise God that you did. Um, 
Can you talk about how, when you started seeing, I need extra help. You've already moved to Austin. You're out of your parents' house. Mm -hmm. In my mind, I'd be like, that would help mend relationships, that you're getting help, you're not living with them. How has that still been a struggle for you to walk through relationships, dealing with trauma on the other side of something so difficult and traumatic? Are you specifically mean family relationships? Yeah. I mean, I know that that was the thing that was so difficult for you right after. Um, What does that look like for you now? So to kind of walk you through how that unfolded, I think there was, what happened was I, I was getting that help and in that process, probably late 2016, 2017, 2018, kind of that time span, I had to face this reality that like, and it was it was a painful reality. And it was just all this anger came up. I was like, where was the organization? Why didn't they reach out after I left the hospital? And why didn't my family seek any help for this? Why did they just kind of stare at me while I was emotionally drowning? And it brought up a lot of anger. And I was like, why did you guys? And it, it take now where I'm at with it now is like, well, they they just weren't equipped. And they don't even really have the personality type to seek it out. It's like too scary for them, right? So that's allowed me to have more compassion. But I, this, there was this anger, this deep anger. And every time I would talk to them over the phone, or even I went back in person, it would actually dig up all the trauma mm-hmm. because it would remind me of the emotional disconnectedness. It would remind me of of the failures and how deeply impacted my life. And it was so painful because of so many losses. So I just, there was a point where I said, I can't talk to you anymore. Yeah. Because it's it, it's like ripping the bandit off and bleeding all over again. I, I, I got to heal. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go over here. We're just, just going to, we're going to seal off the wound, you know, for however length of time. And it was, you know, it was a couple of years. Um, Did they understand that? I don't know if they understood, but they respected it. That's great. Um, and so where it is now, uh, there is some communication now only via email. Um, but I think we're going to work towards more than that. Um, but it's just taken me a long time because what would happen is, I mean, back then when I would talk to them, I would just fly into a rage again or mm. I'd start crying again. I was like, this does not work. Yeah. You know, so I just really, I just need a lot of time to just process what was going on in here, understand that. And then it's really in the more recent past that I've kind of understood kind of the compassion side of like, they don't really have the tools mm-hmm. and they may never. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, so it's it's an ongoing process. You're a PA mm-hmm. and you work here in Austin. How is this journey that you've been on and you have endured and walked through and survived and on the other side of something that most people will not ever go through. Uh, How has that changed the way you treat your patients? Oh, it's 180 degrees. Um, Because now I know that some of their behavior, symptoms, whatever, may very well likely have a traumatic origin. They may be aware of it. They may not be aware of it. But even some other bodily symptoms. Um, like I treated a girl who came in for kind of some panic attacks and, and PTSD and type symptoms. And I just was able to kind of, we were able to kind of explore where that might've come from and just kind of walk through that a little bit. And I just, I'm much more willing to just sit, listen, connect to what they're feeling, 
allow them to feel like I, I just I approach it with a lot more empathy. Yeah. Yeah. How long was it after you came back to the States that you were working again? It was a year. Yeah. Do you remember the first time you went back to work? Yeah. Good, bad, hard? Um it was it was too much at once. Um I, I basically st- started back into a full-time job and what I probably should have done, I needed kind of a graduated re-entry program, much like the army has for Mm -hmm. its soldiers. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe start with 15, 20 hours a week. And we, you know, I needed that, but there was no, I mean, there wasn't a structure to give that to me. Yeah. Yeah. I was just figuring it out on the fly. Yeah. You know, it's funny you mentioned the army and soldiers and that's normally what I would be the first thing I would think of with someone who might be experiencing PTSD from a traumatic experience. We would think of like soldiers, but I, I now after talking to you, I will always think of someone who has been through anything traumatic and think of how that could affect them for the rest of their life. I mean, sexual assault survivors, rape survivors can have it. Um, any kind of physical abuse, you can have it. Um, Sometimes major loss, any major loss, a, a really bad car wreck might do it to you. I mean, there's there's different ways you can get it besides war. Yeah, for I mean, yes, obviously here you are, like refu like refugees mm-hmm. in Syria. Yeah, you know things like that. Are you glad you went over to Sierra Leone? In the end, I think so. If you had asked me that two years ago, I would have said no way. <laughs> um, I think in the end, I can see God's hand in it. Um, I can see how it's kind of brought me closer to God in a lot of ways. I mean, it was just me and him. I had nothing else. Um, so from that perspective, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily wish it on somebody. And if I know what is going to happen, I might not have gone. Um, but I think in the end, it's being used for good. I heard someone say one time that they wouldn't necessarily by any means wish to redo anything that's been difficult, but they can see the way God is working through it. Um, speaking of faith, I would imagine something like this. You just told me that you have grown closer to God through this. Um, I would imagine that it could go one of two ways, that you could grow closer or you could say, I'm done with this. And I don't know what your faith background was like previous to this. Um, but was there ever a time where you thought, I'm done with you, God? Um, no. Now, there was a point where I said, I'm done with, I'm done with church. Well, I think you're, I'm done with your people is what you were thinking. <laughs> like, yeah. I, do, I, I told God I'm done with the evangelicals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but for some reason, I was never done with God. I mean, but now there was a period where I was kind of rebelling against God, but I never told him I didn't want him. I was kind of in rebellion, but rebellion out of pain more than just trying to numb the pain more than anything else. Um, But for some reason, I I didn't want to cast him out entirely. Um, I don't fully understand why that is because I, I, I probably had every reason to say, forget this. Because a lot of the reason I went over to Africa was out because of my faith, because of my belief in like helping those in need. And and I mean, I didn't go with a Christian organization, but I but my Christian values did influence the decision to go. Yeah, yeah. Am I remembering correctly that there was some pushback against bringing Americans back onto American soil with the virus? Was there pushback? I, I think people? there was some some fear around that. Yeah. Okay. People did, were like a little bit. 
some voices, not a lot, but there's some voices that are like, oh, we shouldn't do that. Did that influence at all? You think the doctor's decision to say maybe you should just go through the back door? I, I think they thought that um, a little bit, yeah, because of the stigma at the time. Right, that's what that's I, yeah. part of why I think they advised that. Yeah. Now you're talking about your story, all of it, your time, the trauma that you've endured, um, the difficultness that that's brought to you and your family and relationships. Why talk about it now? Um, I think because, well, partially because that reporter contacted me and when he did, I mean, I wouldn't have been ready before then. But I always, this whole time, these last five years, there's like this, there's been this story in me the whole time. And I just, it's like, there was a part of me, it's like, I feel like I was hiding. And so I, I, I did want to tell it. I didn't know how, maybe it was a book, maybe it was, I didn't know what it was, but it's like, I had this thing in me. And it's almost like it had to come out at some point. Yeah. Um, either, I think partly for my own healing. Um, in fact, if you read a lot of books on trauma, telling your story in narrative form actually helps the brain form new neural connections around that story. Um, it actually breeds some resilience. Um, so it's probably partly for me, but it's also partly a desire to set, to let people know, hey, like when your loved one, when your friend goes through trauma, like this is like this is what they might be experiencing. You've got to like approach them differently. Mm. You said when you came out of the hospital and you moved home, you felt really lonely and really isolated, probably really misunderstood. Five years out, do you still feel those things in some ways? In some ways I do, and I probably always will, just maybe not to the intensity that I did. I mean, there's something about what happened to me that left a huge scar that hardly anyone will ever understand. And there is a loneliness in that. That's my cross to bear, and I understand, but I understand that now. Um, but I don't feel to the intensity that I used to, and I know how to manage it now. I, like, I recognize, like, oh, that's that, that's that loneliness from what happened. That's what that is. Oh, okay. You know, as opposed to before, it's like, what is this? This feels terrible. Oh my gosh, I'm gonna die. You know, this, I don't wanna experience this. Um, so I guess that's how I would answer that. I, I do feel that um, because that event, it separated me. It did. Um, but I can, I've learned how to kind of live with that or cope with that. It's almost like you have life pre-Ebola and two, life I, post right, Ebola. Right, I have two lives. And I think that the, the sense of loneliness comes from every part of my life died. I got separated out from the regular trajectory. I got separated out from my peer group. You know, there's a pre and a post and there's a death right in the middle. And that's a, it's a jarring feeling even now. It's like, wow, like that, that, wow. You know, and most people can't even, they can't even fathom about relating to that because their lives have, you know, they've had difficulties, but they've generally gone, they've never had everything taken away at once. I lost my job. I lost my health. I lost the where I lived and my social, all, all the life I had built up in Houston, which was where I was living, gone because I had to move back to Dallas. Um, I lost a relationship that I, at the time, thought was going to be, you know, going to marriage and starting a family and all that. I lost all of that. I lost my sense of identity. I lost my hopes and dreams. I, I, I had hoped for a long time to actually do some form of medical mission. And I thought that was kind of maybe an entry point into maybe doing that more long term. I lost that. Um, I lost the respect of many people because I just was a total mess, you know. Um, so many things were lost like that. 
Have you gained th- things back? Some of them. I've gained my work life back. Uh, I think my health is back. Um, friendships, um, those have been a little more difficult. I mean, I think that most of them are back, but they're just a lot different. And their lives had their lives moved on anyway, you know, so they're just in much different places from I am. So it feels relating can feel weird sometimes because I'm like, oh yeah, like you're in the spot where I thought I was going to be until all this happened. So relating can be sometimes a little painful for me, but I, I have most of those relationships back. Um, I think the family relationship isn't fully back yet. Um, I don't know where I want to go for the future. So my hopes and dreams are not really sure that's back. Um, I haven't had much of a dating life since then because I've been pursuing healing mostly. So that's not back. Um, so some things have come back and uh, other things, not as much. Maybe not. You know, it's what I'm learning by listening to you. Even you talk about all the things that you lost and you list them out, like everything that you look at. And it, and it really sums up a whole entire life. I mean, everything you listed. Um, and I think that is something that as an outsider looking in and as someone who will potentially walk through someone who goes through something so traumatic, it's something we need to remember that when the when the situation's over, when the person is healed or when the abuser is gone, whatever it might be, fill in the blank, that that their life is not automatically back to normal. Um not by a long shot. And I think I have some friends of we have some friends, my husband Aaron and I do, who have gone through something very traumatic, different, very traumatic for them that Aaron and I will never endure. And you know what? We don't understand it completely, but it's always there. We always we can talk about it. It's there. It happened. But it's almost as though they had this life before and a life after. And it's like a death. It's like a death. It's a death of a life. So with your the listeners, I'm going to say that most of them will not endure what you walk through. I hope not. Yeah, I hope not. <laughs> but let's. Let, I want you to talk to two people. I want you to talk to the person who will endure something traumatic because that, I mean, that anyone can go through and you just listed off a ton of things that could cause PTSD, anxiety, trauma. Uh, what is your advice to them? Hmm... It would be allow yourself to go through the process and allow yourself to feel what you're going to feel and try to try to accept your losses even though you can't change them and try to internalize the fact that most of the people you're going to talk to, they're not going to understand and you're going to feel alone in it. And that's part of the journey. Um, find something outside of yourself to either trust or kind of hold you. For me, it was God. Um, and surround yourself with either other people who have gone through something that can speak to you or people that haven't but that are willing to let you be exactly where you are in your process. That's good. It's why people go to AA, because there's someone there that can understand. Now speak to the community, the family, the people who, by no fault of their own, can't fully understand what that was like. 
What your loved one needs the most is connection. Genuine connection to where they're at. So, how about this? I'll give a list of do's and don'ts. Okay. Here's some things not to say. Why aren't you over this? That was three months ago. Um... Well, you shouldn't be anxious. Well, you shouldn't be crying. Shoulds and shouldn'ts. Leave those out. Um, well, man, bef- you used to be like this before, but what's the, uh, you know you don't seem like yourself. All those just make the person feel more shame. But phrases that do help to communicate your support would be things like, I don't fully understand, but I want to understand. Can you help me understand? Um... I want to be with you in this. I'm with you in this. Your tears are welcome here. All of you is welcome here. Um, also, uh, so those, those are some phrases. Um, your family member needs to be heard and understood. Your family member or friend needs a place where they can feel safe crying. And the other thing I would say is when you see your loved one in pain, don't try to start fixing them. Just be with them. And if their pain scares you, that says that's something you're afraid of in yourself. You know, you you have to be willing to face pain with courage. And part of that is letting that person go through their process and you not reacting to it. And those are difficult things for they're loved ex- ones. They're extremely, because we want, when we see our loved ones in pain. You want to fix it. We want to fix it. We're, and what your loved one wants, just be with me. I remember times where I was crying, weeping, and no one would embrace me. They would just kind of look at me like, what is he doing? That's an incredibly alone feeling. Well, no, when no one will come around you, put their arms around you and just say, I'm here with you. Let me weep with you. In the Bible, it says, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn or weep with those who weep. That's, at least as Christians, that's what we're going to do. Well, Preston, I'm really sorry that you had to endure all of this. Um, I'm thankful, like you said, that God can do something with it. Um, I would never want you to have to endure this or anything like this again. Um but thank you for being willing to share your story because I know that through your story, um, people are gonna be able to be more empathetic with someone. They're gonna be able to be more understanding. They're gonna be able to be more loving. They're gonna be able to be better to someone because of hearing your journey. And so thank you so. for that. That's my hope. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. 
Oh, honey, who's gonna wanna buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a Remax agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. Remax is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 Brand Spark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Jamie, what an incredible conversation you and Preston had about this season in his life. You know, when we talked about having him on to talk about life on the other side of Ebola, I never could have imagined the journey that his life has taken over the past five years. I know. I did not know what I was getting into as well. And I can't help but think about how we need to have so much more compassion and patience and understanding as we walk around and meet people who have walked through traumatic things and might be hurting. Right. As we talked about in the interview, Preston just went public with his story this year. And so we're going to link to that article where they first told his story in our show notes. In fact, if you want to stay up to date with all things On the Other Side, you can text OTOS. That stands for? On the Other Side. OTOS to 55444. Today's show was mixed and mastered by the team at Podshaper. The music was created for the show by Matt Graham. And On the Other Side is produced by Lindsay Sweeney. We're your hosts, and you can find us on Instagram. I'm at Jamie Ivy. I'm at Aaron Ivy ATX. And you can keep up with this podcast on Instagram as well, at On the Other Side Pod. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. We will see you guys next week. Mm-hmm.